trust and psychological safety aren't exactly the same thing, but they're all meshed up together. You can't have psychological safety without trust and vice versa. Welcome to episode one of Managing the Way, a show that exists to help you, the manager, build a great team. Now today I'm talking with Denise Vanek, who's the owner of Thought Design, uh, where she helps teams achieve mental shifts that create lasting change in culture, productivity, and overall team unity. Um, now one of the tactics that she uses is she has a space where she has the teams cook a meal together. And through that, she's engaging all the senses and actually addressing core issues with team communication um, and that sort of thing. And so she has some very interesting things to say about how to actually build high-performing, uh, amazing teams. So let's jump into the interview with Denise. Well, good morning, Denise. Thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate you coming in. Thanks, Mike. It's yeah. great to be here. So I wanted to do an introduction of you, and I was just going to read the bio on your website or the, the blurb on your website so people can get a context for, for who you are and what you do, and then you can go into a little bit more detail on that. So That's great. Um, so veteran business coach Denise Venek has dedicated her career to helping individuals and some of the nation's largest brands perform more efficiently and collaboratively. She created Thought Design in 2013 to allow her to create and curate the physical environment for her high-performance thinking programs in Rockford, Michigan. That's correct? right. That's right. So tell me a little bit, Denise, about your background and how you got to Thought Design. Then we can we can kind of cover what Thought Design is and how you guys work. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So um, I always say my background is a little wiggly. Um, I didn't have a straight path anywhere. Uh, but the, the path that I've taken over the last 35 or plus years of my career has always involved learning, um, training, workshop design, coaching. But at the, at the end of the day, it's always been about learning. Uh, so I've worked with uh, nonprofit groups for many years as part of a partnership where we helped large nonprofit organizations really get themselves, as we used to say, as healthy as they needed to be to be who they wanted to be. Um, and then I found myself for a while in Southern California as the chief learning officer for a big financial services company, kind of swung the pendulum to the other side, to the mm -hmm. corporate side. And then about six years ago, around the time I was turning 50, I decided that um, this idea that had been marinating for so many years of creating space for people to learn and to learn how to learn was something that I was either going to do or not do. And I decided to do it. And I so decided to come back to Rockford, which is my hometown where I grew up, and uh, see if it was going to work. Awesome. And you typically work with, so in this space, you're typically working with, um, from what I understand, you're working with companies that are growing. So past kind of the 25 employee marks, you're working with leaders of those companies, but then also team leaders inside of large organizations. Is that correct? Yeah, most often. Yeah. yeah. Um, we really work with groups um, all across the spectrum. Um, but I'd say most of the time we are working with um, large teams uh, within an organization. We work with some organizations as a whole. We may start with an executive team and then add layers and, and layers of people down through the organization until we um, are able to achieve some shifts and, and culture and practices throughout the whole organization. That's one of our favorite things to do. Um, but certainly we also work with smaller startup companies and um, even sometimes some solopreneurs 
are part of our, what we call public programs. Anyone can show up and, and learn in community kind of experiences. So is it just Denise at the front teaching or tell me about how interactive it is? Cause I know you guys do like some like cooking <laughs> at your space. I mean, tell me, tell me what a typical program, if there is a typical program, uh, tell me what that looks yeah, like. Yeah. Well, um, there's actually not necessarily a typical program. So the space is so much a part of the learning experience um, because I've learned over the years that space is everything when it comes to learning. And so that's one of the reasons why I created it. So we do have a big culinary space. I call it my favorite classroom. Mm. Uh, one of the things I know from the science about learning is the more senses you have engaged as you learn, the stickier the learning is. And I racked my brain. How do you get all five senses engaged during a learning experience? And I couldn't think of any other way than to throw people into a kitchen. And it turns out that when a team finds themselves in the kitchen and creating a dish together, working together, whatever they're doing, there isn't really anything that they do back at work as a team that they can't replicate in the kitchen. Mm. They solve problems, they make decisions, they collaborate, they help, they support, they challenge, they give feedback. All the things that we do as part of our work can be replicated in an hour and a half, creating a dish together, and it's an absolutely fascinating thing to watch. Yeah, no, that's interesting. Um, so tell me, like, if someone's coming, like, why are they calling up Denise Vanek at Thought Design? Like, like, what what is the pain that they're the struggling moment that they yeah. have when they're saying, Denise, we need you in here, or they hear you talk at some some place? Like, what is it that's resonating there? Yeah, are they feeling stuck? Are they feeling just frustrated at progress or what? Yeah, so all of those things. So I. Th- I think what I'm noticing is that for many teams, things that used to work aren't working so well anymore. Um, the world is getting more complex, work is getting more complex, and teams are struggling. And it, it isn't necessarily that they're struggling because they're not competent, they're not smart, they're not good at what they do, or they don't like each other. Um, often they're struggling because they don't have the tools to keep up with the complexity or the changes that they're facing and how work is getting done. And so they call me because what I do is I, um, I think in a unique way, take uh, science, the science of adult learning, uh, neuroscience, how the brain works, the science of adult development, and other various tools, and I kind of mash them up together and create a way for people to come in and begin to learn at a very basic level how their brain works, why they do what they do, why they mm. think the way they think, and how to get unstuck from habitual thinking. Mm. So it turns out the majority of what we do is actually habit, mm -hmm. including our thoughts. And if we think the same way we did yesterday, we're going to act the same way we did yesterday. And so at Thought Design, we create these really unique experiences to help people kind of zoom back out and go, oh. And then the design part is they get to redesign new ways of thinking, new ways of acting, new ways of working, and even understanding their work. That's interesting. So you, it seems like it's, it's, yeah, it's like unlearning bad habits. It's, it's not just conforming to the the sense of urgency. Cause I guess what I kind of hear you say is like, people are just sucked into these like urgent tasks or like 
these these new um, work patterns and they don't know how to adapt to that and the yeah. old yeah. processes aren't working. Yeah, so so one thing there I might change is it's not necessarily about bad habits. Certainly we develop bad habits, but sometimes even good habits that we develop cease to be as useful as they used to be. And what I'm noticing a lot now is a lot of the tools and practices that we've taught people that have been useful in years past in doing their work just aren't as useful anymore. And people are perplexed. You know, why isn't this working anymore? And what's an example of that? Could you, could you, um, well, here's share? a good example. Uh, a company that I work with a lot, uh, a manufacturing company. Um, recently decided that they really needed to grapple, grapple with their labor issue, um, which most of my clients are facing right now. The, mm -hmm. the labor issue, unemployment is at an all-time low, and so they're struggling with it, and they decided to use um, what they have been taught and trained over the years to use, which is a process called root cause analysis. What's going wrong? What's the problem? What's the root cause of this problem? So they use this very important, very useful tool. Well, it turns out that this issue that they're wrestling with is more complex than that. And so the use of the tool actually takes them to a place where they find themselves arguing. Mm. They find more than one cause and they begin to argue and fight and find themselves in conflict and difficulty because they can't decide which one is right when it turns out they're probably all right, and there's a new way of thinking that's needed to be able to find the patterns in all of that and decide the way forward. We, we used to be able to decide where we wanted to be, make a plan for how to get there, and as long as we executed that plan, we were gonna get there, and we mm. knew we were gonna get there. It doesn't quite work that way anymore. Now, the world is a little bit too complex for that. So we're we're more often building that road or that bridge while we're walking on it. Yeah. And I know that's kind of an abstract idea, but for most teams, the shift in thinking that that requires, it, it's really frustrating and it's a real hard change to make. Yeah. How long would you say they're typically struggling with something like that? Because when oh, I hear you say that, question. it's like it's like they they're, they're going down this path and then it's causing them a roadblock. But then I could see like people just going in this, like almost spinning your wheels process yeah. where you're saying, Hey, we've tried all these different little things, but it really is takes a sense of like getting above and the, the problem and seeing the forest for the trees, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah. So you're really putting your finger on something that's really important, which is, um, this distance. So uh, one of the big shifts that I really see in leadership today is that I think one of the tools that leaders need more than anything else is their ability to manage the Zoom lens. Mm. And you know, it used to be that leaders needed to be expert. They needed to know what they were doing, and they needed to know exactly where we're going to go and how to get there. People looked to leaders for that um, expert knowledge and the confidence that they have the roadmap for how we're going to get where we're going to go. Um, and so leaders needed to be deeply in the work with people, you know, sort of close up to the detail. And I think now more than ever, leaders need to know how to zoom out mm. and how to be sort of on the balcony instead of on the dance floor yeah. um, more often and be able to see the big picture and uh, see patterns 
and what's going on and be able to nudge the system in a direction instead of say, okay, everybody follow me. I know how to get there. Because the honest truth is most leaders, they can't predict next week accurately anymore. Yeah. Let alone five years from now. Yeah. How did, how do you get them over that mental hurdle of feeling like you have to have a plan? Because I know even myself uh, as a leader, oh yeah. myself as a leader or myself as like, even I have young kids, you know, yeah. it's like you want to be able to like have the plan and have yeah. it all figured out when it's like, that's not the case. Yeah. So how do you, how do you break that mental kind of, I'd say hurdle for lack of a better word, but it's like break them out of that thinking to say, Hey, this is okay. Mike, you know, that's such an insightful question. <laughs> that, so, so now let's pull out the brain science. Okay, so one of the things that your brain is paying the most attention to is certainty. Mm. And your brain is working every second of every day to assess how much certainty you have about your experience and how much you need. And so many, for uh, all of us, essentially, when we don't have the amount of certainty that we need, your brain takes you into a threat state. And it starts executing all the stuff to help you take care of yourself and defend yourself. So what you're experiencing is this urgency. I need a plan. I need more certainty. And when that happens, maybe some of the bad behaviors start to come yeah. out, right? <laughs> never, never. <laughs> never, no, never. <laughs> so, um, so this is where the brain science can kind of be useful because um, when we know that, um, we can actually assess the situation and we can actually dampen some of that response by basically saying, this is a moment in which um, this is what I'm certain about and this is what I'm not certain about. And ironically, naming the thing you're not certain about gives you some certainty, mm, if yeah. that makes sense. Yeah. Um, in other words, we can find ways to work with the way our brain is going to biologically work anyway. Um, the fact is sometimes we can't get the certainty that we need. But then there are, of course, other times where it is useful still to have a plan. Yeah. And we can make plans. So I think the skill for leadership now is knowing the difference. Hmm. It's reading the context. Yeah. What can I do here? What can't I do here? What tool is useful? This tool I've been using for 20 years, is that a useful tool to use right now? Or is there another one I should be using? Just because it worked even a year ago doesn't mean it will work today. Yeah. Um, I think anyone who has parented more than one child mm -hmm. has had this experience in another way, right? Yeah. You, you try the thing <laughs> that worked perfectly with kid number one and yeah. expect it to work the same way. Yeah. And then it doesn't. I, right? yeah, I know that really well. <laughs> yes. so, so I have four kids and it's like my, my one son, he like, he wanted to know every like planned thing that we had for the day. And he, that, that was like a big deal for him. If he didn't have that, he, he didn't function well. To whereas like my, our other kids are not that way at all. So it's like, you try this one thing, you're like, okay, I have this figured out. And it's like, oh, it's totally, totally different. Yeah. At first, such yeah. a young age too, yeah. you know, which yeah. is crazy. So, so here's the word agility, right? Yeah. So your agility as a parent is really going to be a key to your success mm -hmm. in parenting your children to mm -hmm. be able to read the, the context of who they are and what's happening at the moment and what they need from you in the moment. Um, for leaders, I think agility is really the critical piece mm -hmm. today um, with the increased complexity. So for leaders to have the agility to know when to zoom in, when to zoom out, um, 
uh, when to show up as expert, when to show up as explorer, um, and whatever different metaphors apply. Um, that's the key to to know when to really be a catalyst in a situation and when to bring certainty. And I think more than ever, leaders need that kind of agility in their thinking as much as their behavior. Yeah, no, I think that's 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 something I can definitely see the need for. And how like how then, if someone goes through a, a workshop with you, and then how do they take that and actually then teach their teams? So or their team members. So if yeah. they're if they're not an owner or an operator of a company where they would have more of an influence, let's say, to whereas if yeah. they're just leading a team inside of a, a large organization, how do then they they go and actually do the same thing? Yeah, yeah that's, that another, seems like another yes. hurdle to get over. Oh, it's so important. That's a great question. So here's, um, because it's so important, here's what we did. Um, we took all of the things that we teach, well, not all, most of the things that, that we teach and we consider to be the most important thinking tools that people and leaders need. And we created experiences around all of those. We call this our thinking toolbox. You know, so the idea is, um, boy, toolboxes are really handy, right? I'm so glad I've got a toolbox full of all different tools so that when I spend a weekend, like I did last week, putting together Ikea furniture, yeah. <laughs> I've got everything that I need. Yeah. Uh, my kitchen is full of different tools that are appropriate for different uses. Uh, well, when it comes to our thinking, same thing. If you use the same kind of thinking for every problem, what you're going to find is that they don't all work. So we wanted to create this kind of literal toolbox. And so for each one of those uh, tools, so there's a decision-making toolbox, there's a problem-solving toolbox, a collaboration toolbox, motivation, creativity, all sorts of them. For each one, we have different experiences designed, but we also created literal physical cards that are tools that people can keep. And uh, we, we urge managers often to keep those around and begin any kind of meeting or gathering of a team with just, let's spend 10 minutes playing with our thinking and yeah. pull out a tool and just play with it. So what this does over time is it increases the agility of the team, that there's this constant reminder that we can choose the thinking that we're using in the moment as we need it. So it's really important that the, the concepts, which can feel kind of abstract, are actionable. They go back, and people can literally change the way they interact with one another. Um, so... We have 14 tools in our toolbox, and we have at least five literal physical tools developed for each one of those. So literally, a leader can have a box with about 80 different thinking tools yeah. that they can pull out and help them day to day. Wow. So how did you come up with that? <laughs> That's just, it's super fascinating because it's, when I think about that, it's like you might get a tool or I, I would call it maybe a tactic out of a book you read or a seminar you go to, yeah. you would get this concept yeah. and you'd kind of, it bounce around in your head and you could say, this is how I see that being applied. Yeah. And I can think about an instance where I could use that or a potential future instance where I could use that. But then when you're in the moment, yeah. you often revert back to just habitual behavior or what you think is best. So you how, how do you get, how do, yeah, how do you, will. how'd you, you get at that? Guaranteed. <laughs> 
Well, so that question again was so insightful because I actually started with that problem that you just stated. You know, so what I know from the brain science is that our brains are lazy. Mm. They, your brain has this real big objective of saving calories. It doesn't want you to burn more calories than you need to with anything. Mm. So, you know, if you think about a time where you're trying to remember something and it felt hard to remember and you had this impulse, I'm just going to stop thinking about that. That's your brain telling you, don't burn any more calories on this. Yeah. So for that reason, we develop habits. We do the same things over and over because they're easier on your brain. So always your brain's plan one is to do what you did before. If you're going to change something, we all know how hard that feels. It's because we have to expend some effort to do it differently. And most of us are too busy just sort of executing through life to be that conscious about it. And so uh, I was walking down a beach one day (laughs) <laughs> and just thinking, and uh, I actually had earphones on, and I was listening to Elton John's greatest hit album. All right, good one. <laughs> and here's the train of thought for me. I start to think, now, how old is he now? And I start to do the math, and I think, well, he's not that much older than me. And he, this is amazing, his body of work over his life. Wouldn't that be amazing to have a greatest hits album? And I was kind of having that moment. Yeah. <laughs> and I said, wait, wait a minute. Do I have a greatest hits album? I've been in this with people for more than 35 years. What have I learned? Yeah. What have I noticed? What what have I done that would essentially be my greatest hits album? And as I was walking down the beach, it just started coming to me. You know, I've been talking about trust for more than 30 years. You know, I've been talking to people about how they relate to other people and um, how they create agreements with each other and how they learn how to lead for more than 35 years. Huh, maybe I do kind of have a Greatest Hits album. And that's actually how that was born. Yeah, I came back cool. from my walk and <laughs> sat down and started writing. And, that, and, and I knew that the toolbox was the metaphor. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I started working with it, and that's really how it came to be. Yeah, that's cool. That's a really <laughs> cool story. Um, so when you have, you, you talked about, you, you helped teams with these different topics. So the story you just told, you're saying, hey, over the course of 30 years, I've helped them with trust. I've helped them with um, maybe vision or, you know, how to do these different things. Um, do you feel like there's commonalities of the teams that you come against, you come, come in, interact with, of they're typically struggling with, like, trust dynamics? Because one of the things I'm extremely curious about is you have these core things that a company or a team can do yeah. um, that set them up for success. Yeah. And in some of the conversations I've had or, or research, it's like, you know, identifying core values, having like a vision mm-hmm. statement, those things. But in your experience, what are some of those core things that are recurring themes? Yeah. They might need new approaches or unique approaches based on the team, like chemistry or mm-hmm. personality yep. makeups. Yep. But what are kind of some of those core things that like come up time and time again? Yeah. You yeah. Know? Yeah. This is kind of an easy one. So, so I'll start by saying that um, what we know from the most recent research all over the planet is um, that there seems to be only one common thread among high-performing teams. You know, there's so many things that make teams perform really well. A lot of them tend to be contextual. You'll find one that works for this team, but it doesn't seem to make a difference for another team. Mm. 
there's only one thing that seems to pop up that's true in every high-performing team, and that's something that we call psychological safety. So in my experience over the years, the one thing that hasn't changed is when I say to leaders or team members, you know, tell me, what's one of the things that you feel like you're struggling with the most or could use the most work? First answer, in fact, I almost always write it down before they tell me because it's a given, communication. We never nail that. Yeah. Um, but the second would be trust. Yeah. You know, and so this is all baked into this idea of psychological safety because what that is is it's knowing that I can bring my voice, I can disagree, I can offer my ideas, I can really be myself, I can take risks, I can fail, all of those things, and they're I'm not going to be hurt that I can do that, um, that this is a place where that can be done. We do that for each other. So trust and psychological safety aren't exactly the same thing, but they're all meshed up together. You can't have psychological safety without trust and vice versa. And it sounds like communication is a downstream effect of that, right? Almost. It's like it's a result. Communication is how it happens. It's how it happens. Okay. Yeah, yeah. Right. You know, so think of it as the tracks that the train yeah. rolls on. And communication is an incredibly complex thing, even if you look at it simply from the brain science and the way that brain is making meaning out of the words that we speak to one another. It's so complex, it's actually kind of a miracle that it ever works, <laughs> to be honest. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. <laughs> yeah. So being that the psychological safety concept comes up in, ta- in every team, what, like, why? Like, why? You know, like, what is it that, um, is it like people's ego, like that their, or their lack of self-confidence or like, you know what I mean? Like, yeah. So great question again. So let me, uh, maybe answer it this way. Uh, your brain is scanning the environment five to seven times every second hmm. constantly. Um, and it's operating principles to help you minimize threat and maximize reward. That's its job other than keeping you alive. So it's kind of scanning to to help you know when to defend and when to grab something that's, that's good. And the things that it's paying attention to all the time are status. So how important am I right now? Certainty, what's going to happen? How can I predict the future even a second from now? Autonomy, which is about control, uh, relatedness, my connectedness to every mm-hmm. other human being, even strangers, um, and fairness is what's happening, what should be happening. Your brain is paying attention to all those things at one time, and you're almost never aware of the data that it's taking in. So when you think about psychological safety and why that's so important, it gives us a sense of importance. It gives us some certainty. It gives us autonomy, right? We have control then to bring our voice and to take risks. It's about relatedness and feeling yeah. safe, and it's about fairness. Um, so all of those things actually get a real boost um, when an environment is psychologically safe. Yeah. So all the other things sort of come from there. So it's it's a natural outcome of what your brain's already doing. It's already what doing the scanning. Is, is looking so yeah, for. yeah, mm-hmm. and you're just naturally doing that. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. 
it, it's a way, I guess, of of labeling what would happen if your brain was in a reward state in all of the things that it's looking for. What mm -hmm. would we call that state? Well, we would call it psychologically safe. Yeah, yeah. So tell me a little bit about how someone could could work with you and what does that look like in terms of doing either workshop or yeah. um, ongoing basis? Yeah. Like what are some of the, the ways you work with teams or just with leaders in yeah. general? Well, um, we really love to be considered partners with the teams and the groups that we're working with um, because we know that real sustainable change almost never happens because you went to a workshop for two hours. <laughs> um, it happens because you have a lifestyle of learning and shifting and, and paying attention. So we created a program that we call our Thought Partner Program. So organizations can essentially become a member. And what membership offers people is um, preferred pricing on workshops, but most importantly, what we do for our members is we work with them to develop a roadmap, sort mm -hmm. of a, a roadmap of who their team is and where they may be going and what are the tools they need to get there. So we custom design that for every team. And uh, whether you're a member or not, you can come to Thought Design and attend some of the workshops that we offer. Um, but mostly what we do is we design learning experiences, especially for teams. Yeah. So if you are a thought partner with us, you have your roadmap, uh, we will usually design anywhere between four and 12 workshops a year for your team. And those workshops can be live, they can be virtual. Most often they're an hour or 90 minutes long. Mm -hmm. So little bits and little bits. We know from the science that this is how adults learn. Yeah. Um, learning should be small, should build on itself, it should be spaced. Um, so we, we create those experiences depending on what the team needs to happen in any of our different spaces, our learning lab, which is more of a workshop environment, the culinary space that we've talked about. And we have a smaller um, environment too that's sometimes yoga room or a mindfulness practice room. And we incorporate all of that into the learning too. Very cool. Yeah, that's awesome. So if someone curious, if before they want to work with you, what are some of the things that, or maybe one, two, or maybe three things that of pieces of advice you would give to a team that they could implement like tomorrow or things that they could try to get on the road to having a healthier team that would maybe eventually maybe involve working with you, but mm -hmm. something they could start to implement or experiment with, you know, next week? Yeah. So, um, so I think first of all, it's just finding time like thinking time. So often when teams get together for meetings, they're, they're, there's a sense of urgency. They're pushing information around. They're making decisions. They're doing the hard work that teams do. Um, teams also need to get away and have time to think together and reflect together. And I would say step number one is get together, get away from the environment that you're usually in because it, that will trigger the brain to go into the usual Mm. behaviors um, and say, let's spend an hour just being curious about something. Let's just, let's come up with a couple of juicy questions 
and just bat them around and see what happens. Let's get some distance from us and let's step back and just look at us. What do we notice when we look at us? Um, you know, when I get a team in my kitchen, as an example, I like to say I can usually tell within 10 minutes a lot of the dynamics of that team. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't take much to get a little distance, get some curiosity going and see some of the patterns. And, and teams can really, I think, get a good benefit just from an hour of that kind of thing. Yeah. No, I think it's important. But too, too often it's overlooked. I mean, we're too busy. Yeah. Yeah. There's this, this urgency yeah. about everything. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, I, I actually had someone say to me the other day, we're too busy to think. Yeah. That's dangerous. It <laughs> <laughs> doesn't yes. seem very sustainable. Yeah. I mean, we all laughed in the room, but we were laughing at, you know, sort of painfully laughing, right? Yeah. At, yeah. at how often true that actually is. Yeah. Well, awesome. Well, thank you so much, Denise, for, for coming in. I well, appreciate thank it. thank you for having me. It was nice chatting with you. Yeah, it was fun. So, Thanks. Thank you so much for listening. It's our goal to help you build an amazing team. So if this episode helped you, then please share it with a friend so it helps us get the word out about the show. Managing the Way is a production of Waypoint, a tool built for you, the manager, to help you foster an amazing team. Check it out at waypointhq.com. And if you have any feedback for the show, we'd love to hear from you. You email us at podcast at waypointhq.com.